Hello, Revlers. So, it's almost the end of July. How are you? This upcoming episode is our first that's maybe really about COVID and infectious diseases and stuff like that. And you know what? It wasn't supposed to be. You'll hear a lot about why and how the serendipity happened. And uh, I hope you learn a lot about yourself and the time that we're living in and how we will look back on this time. I found my discussion with Amanda Skenendor very, very illuminating. We talked at the uh, middle, end of May, and it seems like the world has already changed since then. I had just gotten my vaccine at the end of April, and I, I was actually recording this in South Carolina, visiting family for the first time in like, you know, a year and a half. And now, even just two months later, it just seems like it's a it's not just a different point in time, but different place in time, different perspective. It's everything is moving so fast and not necessarily that you can make sense of it at the time. And that's why it's interesting to have someone talk about writing historical fiction. So I hope you enjoy it. And of course, I want to thank my sponsors, bookshop.org. You can get Amanda's books by clicking on the links that I provide. Some of your podcast apps do not show those links or do not show them as links. Apple, I'm looking at you. And if that is your situation, please go to my website, https colon slash slash revelrevel.life. And there you will find every book we've ever talked about here on the podcast, as well as others that I recommend and a big fundraiser for a teacher going back to school soon who needs books. So please check that out. Again, you can find that on the Revel Revel website. So please stick to the end so you can hear the ad that I will do for my other sponsor, betterhelp.com. And without any further ado, please enjoy Amanda Skinnendor. Hello and welcome to Revel Revel. I am Lauren Drabble and today I have with me novelist Amanda Skinnendor. Welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Well, thank you for doing this. And I always start off with how we know each other and we don't, but we got introduced via Catherine Alfage, and I don't know how you know her. She lives kind of across the street, if, if there is such a thing in the mountains, but she lives in the same neighborhood that my parents live in, the neighborhood that I grew up in, in Pine, Colorado. Okay, so you grew up in Pine. Yes. I have never met anyone who's grown up in Pine. <laughs> there aren't a lot of us. <laughs> it's a small town. What was that like? It was really lovely. I, it's of course beautiful up there, all of the, the trees and you have, you, you know, wonderful summers where you can hike and camp and just spend all, all day outside. And then you get to do all the fun winter things like sledding and, you know, building snowmen. You can go, you know, not too far and there's skiing, all of that kind of thing. I definitely enjoyed it. I will say as a teenager, you're, you're sort of remote and I grew up in the in the 90s. And so the big thing then was 
to go to the mall, <laughs> which was uh, 45 minutes away. So that was, that was a little bit difficult. There were, you know, no movie theaters. The only sort of, I don't know, fast food that you could call it was the hot dog. It's no longer there, but it used to be in Aspen Park. I think they moved it to Bailey now. Yeah, it's in Bailey. Yeah. So that was sort of like the hangout spot or Safeway. Like literally that was the only place to hang out up, up kind of in the area where I was. Otherwise you had to drive or have a parent drive you down to, down the mountain, we would say, um, to the mall. (laughs) You know, you don't meet that many Colorado natives. You sure don't meet that many pine natives. When did you leave? I left right after high school. Well, I love, I love Colorado. And even today, having been away for more than half my life, I still like feel like I'm from Colorado, that that's my home. When I say I'm going home, I mean, I'm going back to Colorado, not here where I live in Las Vegas. But yeah, I left right away. I always wanted, I wanted to get out and see the world. I joined, there was a, there is still a group called Up With People. It's been around mm-hmm. you know, yeah. since the 60s. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I joined that. We and traveled with for a year with them right after high school, which was amazing. I got to see huge swaths of the United States, dozens and dozens of places I had never been. And then we traveled in Europe for the next kind of half of our tour. So that was amazing. And then I, I always wanted to go to college someplace else that wasn't wasn't Colorado, just to, again, to kind of see, see new places and meet new people. And that's actually what brought me first to Las Vegas. I went to the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and met my husband here. We did manage to leave Vegas, but it sort of calls you back, <laughs> Las Vegas somehow. And we returned after a couple of years and have been here, I think, 13 years now. Okay. How does it call you back? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> if I knew, maybe we wouldn't be here. <laughs> um, I just, I've met a lot of people that have, that have been here in Las Vegas and somehow ended up back. On the one hand, I mean, I don't want to, there are wonderful, wonderful things about Las Vegas. And the longer I've been here, the more I've come to enjoy it. We have incredible, obviously incredible entertainment and restaurants, even like beyond the strip. Um, just your, your regular dining options are amazing here and, and great arts, culture, beautiful nature here in and of itself. But, you know, maybe it's something about, there is an ease, I think, of finding a place here in Las Vegas, not necessarily of, of fitting in because we do have a reputation for being very cool to people. Your neighbors aren't super neighborly, generally speaking, only because Vegas is also very transient. So you get a lot of people coming through. But for that time that people are here, it's pretty easy with all of the the entertainment or certainly I would say before the pandemic and before the recession, very, very easy to find a job here. Um, And so I think that's part of what what brings people back is that that you know that you, you, you can get work here. Yeah. So how often do you get to come home to Colorado? I try to come back at least at least once a year if I can. Um, okay. My parents, like I said, they still live there and it's just, it's so nice to, you know, you get out of the car, you can immediately smell the pine trees and it's, it's very quiet. It's such a different experience than when I'm, when I'm here. And when my, when my parents visit, they're always making comments about, you know, I live next to a road that I don't consider very busy at all, but they're always like, oh, that road, it's so busy. All those cars on that road, you live so close to a busy road. So I think, 
you take for granted when you're up there just how quiet and still and sort of remote it is. It's a wonderful place yeah. to go and recharge. Yeah. So they're still in the house you grew up in? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I have no idea what that's like. I've moved so much. (laughs) (laughs) So what did you major in at UNLV? I majored in linguistics um, with (laughs) with a minor in French. And at the time... I started out as a theater major. That's what I, I came for. Okay. But that did not last long. <laughs> um, I think I was a theater major for one semester. And then I just sort of dabbled. I love languages and I studied abroad in China, learned a little bit of Chinese, which unfortunately I've forgotten completely now. But so then I was like two years in and thought, well, I should figure out how I'm going to graduate <laughs> because even though it's a very big school, the language department wasn't really robust. And so there wasn't a degree in Chinese, for example, that I could get. If I wanted to major in French, it would have taken me way longer than four years. So I just was looking through the catalog and there was linguistics and it was actually so interesting. I love, I love that degree. And sort of the prevailing idea at the time was that, well, you just need a degree. It doesn't matter what it's in. It's just the degree that matters in terms of finding a job. And so I thought, okay, this is interesting and I want to graduate. And so, so that's what I chose, but that was not the reality of, I don't know, the world when I left, I didn't find that all you needed was a degree for linguistics in particular. If you want to do something along those lines, you generally will get like a master's degree in speech, for example, and then you could teach or or work at a school, which I didn't really want to do or you can go on to get a PhD and then do research. Also not what I wanted to do. So I was sort of mm, casting about (laughs) a little bit. And I knew someone um, who had been studying nursing and was telling me about it. And, and she thought, you know, it would, it just seemed like this great opportunity. There is a degree that you, you know, graduate with and you know exactly the type of job that you're getting getting into and, and relatively speaking, it's easy to find a job. My husband and I were back in Colorado at this time. He was at university of Denver. And so I applied to CU, the health science um, program and was lucky enough to get in and, and studied nursing. So you're an RN then? Yes. Yeah. So I graduated from there with my RN and then we moved. (laughs) That's when we moved back (laughs) to Las Vegas so I've never actually worked. I never worked as a nurse in Colorado, but that's where I got my degree. And then we, we came back here and I've been working as a nurse almost the entire time since we've been back. In addition, of course, to writing. So as you know, the theme is about serendipity mm-hmm. or whatever word you choose to call it. Yeah. Universe, God, you know, chance, fate, whatever. So how has that unfolded in your life that you just sort of seem to fall into nursing because this person said, Hey, it's pretty easy to have a career path with it. And then, you know, you're set that down that path, but is that something that you felt like drawn to, or did it just fall in your lap and you go, okay, let's try that. It was not something that I was drawn to. I think you, you meet a lot of nurses who, either it's something that they've had a lot of their family has been nurses, maybe their mom, maybe they had a sister, a cousin, uh, which was not the case for me. 
no one in my immediate family was a nurse or, or you have people that are just very much drawn to the profession that always wanted to be a nurse, that it was sort of a calling and innate calling for them um, throughout their entire life, which was also not the case for me. It was, it was a bit more practical. This looked like a job that I would like and a job or a career that I would like and something where I could find a career. And at the time we didn't really know what, what my husband's kind of future looked like, thought we might be traveling or, or moving around a lot. And so I wanted a career that, that I could transport, right. And be able to right. find a job when whatever city we, or cities we ended up in. So that was what drew me to nursing. And in the beginning, it did not feel like a, at all serendipitous or even like a good choice. I definitely thought it was the wrong choice for a long time. The first job that I had was um, at our county hospital in the neonatal intensive care unit. And while I definitely enjoy working with that population, it's, it's truly wonderful to, to work with families. And I will say, even though the babies that come to the NICU are, they're sick, it's still, it's still a place of hope and generally of happiness. Parents are, are glad to have a baby regardless, you know, even if there's something wrong, it's still, it's still a joyous occasion the birth of their baby, even if that, that joy is also tinged with the fear about the baby's illness and that sort of thing. So it's in that way, it's a very different from other parts of the hospital that are, you know, can be much more somber, I think. So I did enjoy some aspects, but it was also, there were lots of things that I didn't, that didn't enjoy. And I felt like, what have I done? I've gotten myself, now I have two, I've gotten two degrees and I have this job that I essentially that I hated. I, I would, it's terrible, but I would drive to work and I would think, well, if I got in a very small accident and I wasn't hurt and the person wasn't hurt, but I had a reason to call off of work, that would be perfect. And then I thought, <laughs> that is a terrible, a terrible worldview, right? And so I had been doing that for three years working in that hospital. And, and that's when I decided I, I had been taking some uh, writing classes on the side and thought, you know what, I don't want to spend the rest of my life hating what I do. So when I was just turned 30, I quit, quit nursing and um, decided I'm going to be a writer, which is what they tell you never to do. They say, don't quit your day job. Um, right. And on the one hand, I think that is excellent advice. Uh, on the other hand, it sort of gave me this push, right? Like I had sort of jumped off this cliff. You know, I, again, I had this very stable, well-paying job and now, now I'm going to be a writer. And, and I didn't really know even that much about writing. I kind of thought, well, I'll write this book and then people will love it and they'll want to publish it. And, and that'll be sort of this, the beginning of this illustrious career. <laughs> that's not exactly how it works. And it certainly very rarely works in a time frame that's, that's, that's quick. I will say that. Right. And so I, but I did, I wrote this book and sent it off to agents. You know, I learned about the industry. I didn't even know really that, that piece of it when I first started, but I learned, okay, I've got to find an agent who's then going to submit it to the publisher and started doing that. And this was maybe about a year and a half in. And I realized, well, this is a longer process than I thought. I better, I better get a job. Um, so and that's, and that, this is where I think that in fact, being a nurse and having gotten in that degree was very 
was very serendipitous. It was, it's a, it's a career where it was easy to come back to. I had been off for about a year and a half. And when I decided to go back, I got, actually I had two offers within just a couple of days to go back. And I was able to, to go back in a, like a per diem capacity so that I was working just a couple of days a week instead of full-time, although full-time is really three days, but so I was doing one or two days a week at another neonatal intensive care unit, but a smaller department, which was such a better fit. And then, so then I was able to kind of continue writing and I felt like buying myself a little bit more time to continue the process, because like I said, it is really, you're playing the long game with, with writing more than this, you know, get rich quick kind of thing. Most, most writers don't get rich at all. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the, the vast majority don't even make a true living at it. Right. And I mean, like books, authors that you see in Barnes and Noble, over half of them are not, are not selling enough to make, to live off of, which is also something that I don't think I realized again, kind of starry eyed when I started out. And so, you know, nursing in that way was this, this great, flexible opportunity for me to, to do that. And then it was easy to switch too. once, once I decided, you know, maybe I'd like to do something else. I got really interested in um, antimicrobial resistance of bacteria, which just means to say that, you know, you're, you're trying to treat an infection, but the antibiotics that should work don't work because that microbe has developed resistance to that antibiotic. And it's a, it's a rather scary prospect for, for the world, I will say, um, and something I wanted to, to be part of fighting, fixing. And so then I was able to switch from being a neonatal intensive care nurse into infection prevention. And, and that's proved, um, I did that about seven years, I made that switch. You know, all the while I'm also kind of writing what I would say full-time and nursing part-time. But, but it, it has been incredibly rewarding, especially as the, the pandemic came. And yeah, yeah. So let's go back though. So you're at this hospital that you said you were miserable and you wanted to get out, but you didn't really know what you wanted to do. Did you at that point already have a story that you were sort of busting to tell or was it? okay, I'm going to be a writer. And then you figured out what story you wanted to tell. I did have a story in mind before I quit. I would, I actually, <laughs> I had a, a couple of stories actually that I, that I was sort of thinking about. One of the things I would do, you know, after my shift at the hospital to kind of decompress would be, I worked night shifts. So it would be like maybe seven o'clock in the morning eight o'clock in the morning, I would, before I would go home, there was a park by my house and I would go and walk around the park for a little while. And while I was doing that, I was always sort of thinking of story ideas in my head. And then I would get home and jot down a few notes, you know, just to kind of keep, keep the idea alive. Or even um, at work, there's a kind of a quiet hour about four o'clock um, in the morning where all, most, you know, the the babies have all been fed. Most of the medicine has been hung or delivered and you're about ready to, to start it all over again at five, but you have this small bit of time where you can of course catch up on your charting and everything. And then, and then you're sort of just sitting there listening, you know, making sure that everyone is all that the babies are sleeping and, and okay. And in that time when, when there was nothing going on, I would even write down little stories on the back of, you know, scratch paper 
So it was always sort of something that was working, working in my mind. So I did have a story that I set out to write, although, (laughs) and I did write it. That was the first story that I wrote, but not the first book that I sold. Uh, Most authors (laughs) take a few attempts at writing. You're sort of learning the, the craft. So that, that book, I, you know, I'm still, still, you know, fond of the idea, but it's, it's just on a thumb drive somewhere and probably will remain there forever. So that one's never been published. Okay. Uh -uh. No. Yeah. So, you know, I've only read the one book, the second life of Muriel West, and it does have nursing in it, a lot of nursing. And was that, did you want to tell a story about nursing? Is that how that happened? It didn't happen that way. Although the, the fourth book I'm working on, actually, because I enjoyed the nursing aspect of that book, I, I made a more conscious effort to write about that. I think it started, my first book has very little medical anything in it. The first book that was published, Between Earth and Sky. But then my second book, The Undertaker's Assistant, it's about an undertaker or an undertaker's assistant. And I really enjoyed the research around medicine in the 19th century. It's so fascinating, especially being an infection prevention nurse to think about their <laughs> misunderstanding of germs at the time, right? Like, like germ theory was, was very, very just beginning in the late, the latter part of the, the 19th century. And so, for example, in New Orleans, yellow fever used to be a big, big problem for people. And, and you'd have bad seasons where hundreds and hundreds of people would die. And so one of the things they would do is they would get these big barrels and full of tar and light them thinking that the smoke would ward off this sort of evil miasma that was causing yellow fever when in fact it was being transmitted on mosquitoes. So their, their sense of disease transmission was just a little bit misinformed and growing, right? certainly evolving into what we know it was today. So I just, I thought that was just so interesting to read about, you know, these, these early medical techniques. And because I enjoyed that so much in that second book, I thought as I was thinking of ideas for my next book, when I read this, this was just a small little book at the library about Carville where there was the National Leprosarium for about almost a century, I was immediately interested, not only because of the, the stories of the patients who were there, but also because of this, the medical component and the nursing component that was, that was involved in the story. So it was sort of a two, two-pronged interest for me. And that's how I kind of landed on that, the idea for The Second Life of Muriel West. Right. So in your author's note, it sounded serendipitous. You wrote the inspiration for this story came from a small book I stumbled upon at my hometown library. So when you say stumbled upon, walk me through like how that happened. Like it just jumped out at you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was, you know, it was, it was actually tiny. And this was the, um, the library at the university here. So it's huge library with gosh, hundreds of, well, probably hundreds of thousands of books. And what was that? I think I had searched, like done kind of a search for um, something related to medicine and early medicine. Um, and then, so that kind of drew me to that section of the, of the library. And that's when I was sort of thumbing through these books and I pull out this little, again, this little guy 
that was titled Carville, Remembering Leprosy in America. And I thought, leprosy in America, even, I mean, even as a nurse, even as an infection prevention nurse, I had never seen leprosy here. It was something that I thought existed in the past primarily, or in, in other places throughout the world, certainly not here. And so I was immediately kind of gripped by this idea that it had been a disease that in, in certain parts of the country for sure was endemic for, for, for many years. And it actually still, there are still, you know, cases around 200 a year here in the United States. So I, you know, pull this, this book out and it's actually one of many that I kind of take to an armchair off in the library and start flipping through. And, and at that point then it was really the stories inside the book about the patients and, and also learning very early on that this was a disease that is not very contagious at all. Right. Right. But, but that we were quarantining people oftentimes for life based, based on stigma really. And, and so then reading, reading how that affected people, these people who were there, it just really, it touched me. And, and I wanted to, I wanted to explore that and share that with people who, who might not have heard about, about that as well. Well, when I've told people about this book, everyone has said the same thing, just like you did. Like we had lepers here. We had a leper colony here and it wasn't that long ago, you know, and then I tell them that there's still cases every year and they're like, what? Yeah. Yeah. It's mind blowing. And uh, for me, I think I would have liked to read this at any time, but particularly during COVID, it's a weird thing. Mm -hmm. Like I kept thinking, like you're telling in the book that it's really not the contagious, but I'm like, ah, don't touch, you know, and yes, you know, like, oh, they need hand sanitizer, they need masks, you know, all this stuff that it's so COVID specific to my reaction to it that I, I, I can't separate the two now. Mm. <laughs> and I think that was another coincidence, certainly, about, about the novel, because I had started it. In fact, I had written an entire draft before the pandemic even began at all. And, and it was actually very neat. I got to go and visit Carville. It's now like a Louisiana National Guard base where they do some outreach for at, at-risk youth. But there's also the museum there. And a lot of the structures, the old structures are still standing. So I was there for four days. I got to stay in the building that was the old infirmary and just spend all this time with the museum curator and her, this amazing archive of documents, letters and old uh, magazines that they used to put out, pictures, all these amazing things, schematics of the area. And, you know, and I did, I did have sort of a, a flickering sense of, you know, even again, even knowing like this disease is, is so not contagious, the sense of, oh, you know, like you're in this space that, that was a former leper colony. And, and it's, I think it is hard sometimes to divorce even our rational brain from what, what the media in particular has portrayed when, you know, when it portrays people with a disease, which preferentially we actually, they call Hansen's disease now in part because of that, that great stigma but so I had, I had visited there, done my research, written an entire draft, and I sent it to my agent. This was the end of 2019. And he was like, mm, 
mm, this story needs some work. And he, he suggested all of these new, these things that needed to change with the book. So I ended up rewriting almost the whole book between like December and then May when it was due to my editor, May 2020. But kind of right in the middle of that, right in the middle of this rewrite is when, of course, the pandemic hit. And it was it was very surreal, I think, to be, you know, on the one hand at work every day, just trying to deal with this this flood of evolving information about the coronavirus and sort of watching, you know, what was going on in New York at the time and Italy and China. And because we certainly didn't feel the effects of the coronavirus right away here in Las Vegas, there were, of course, we had cases, but we didn't have a big, a truly big spike until the summer, you know, but you just don't know. There was so much we didn't know. And it gave me such a different perspective about what I was writing about. And, and, you know, you can relate to that fear that I think that we felt in the, certainly in the beginning of the pandemic and that people would, would feel at the mention of someone with leprosy because because part of that is is a natural human response and then you you couple that with with misinformation and and that fear is 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 to be expected almost and then and but it also then you know being quarantined in a sense we all were especially in that you know first month or so month and a half it also gave me this great empathy for these patients who were at Carville but for their whole lives, right? Like some would come as children and, and, and live there until they died. And even, so they they found a cure actually at Carville for, for Hansen's disease in the 1940s with antibiotics, but it, it took them several years to kind of test and perfect. And then around the fifties, um, early sixties, they got to the point where they said, okay, it's safe to just treat this sort of outpatient. You know, you could just come for your, your treatment and then, you know, you don't need to be quarantined anymore. But there were many people, some who who left Carville and then ended up coming back and some who never left because their whole life had been confined there, that the real world was was a very scary place. And even though like you have the treatment now, that doesn't immediately erase the stigma. And I, I, I you know, we kind of see a similar a similar thing here with with our own pandemic and and this uncertainty about how to navigate as we're sort of hopefully, you know, moving out into sort of a post-pandemic world where there are vaccines and we do have a better sense of how it's, how it's spread, but there's still fear, right? There's still fear that you can get coronavirus um, by touching something that someone touched two days ago that had the virus. And, and, that, and that those sorts of things, they take a long time to un- undo, I guess. Yeah. And I like how you call it a jail and out on parole or things like that. Were those words that were actually used in the historical documents that you found there at Carvel? Yes. Yes. So they would call it if you, there was, there was a jail <laughs> that they, they put in the, at the colony because it was two part really. They, there were minor infractions, like if you escaped you weren't obviously you weren't allowed to leave. And if you did, you would you would spend usually three weeks on your first offense longer. If you had if you were a kind of a repeat absconder, they would call them, they would call them absconders. That was what the the a medical officer in charge would call them. And then if you were able to get these the skin tests that they would do every month, if you could get 
12 in a row that were negative, you could go and officially they would call it being discharged. You were discharged because you were no longer a menace. And that was the, the, the real wording on the, the certificate. You were no longer a menace to the public health. But the patients at Carville, they would call that your parole. And you would get this, like I said, this certificate, and then you could you could leave. And some people left and, and never had to come back and they could return to their families and live a relatively normal and happy life. But a lot of patients, because at this time there wasn't a cure, right? In the 1920s, when the story set, they didn't have the antibiotics to treat the disease. And so a lot of people would relapse and have to come back. And others would come back, even if they didn't relapse again, because they didn't, they had never operated in the outside world. And they found it a huge, scary place that was also afraid of them. Um, again, you know, you had this, this piece of paper, but, you know, that wasn't always enough for a welcoming reception, certainly back, you know, back home. And so a lot of people would, would come back. And that was actually one of the things I really enjoyed. I'm so grateful that I was able to visit because finding those interesting words and the way, the way people that they spoke about, about the disease, for example, they would, they would call it the gazique. They never, very rarely would refer to it as leprosy. And then it was people at Carville in, in the 1940s and 50s and 60s that were really pushing to get the the name of the disease changed to Hansen's disease again, because it just is such a, a stigma laden word. Yeah. So what you're saying about, you know, how people would react, I mean, you know, look at our world now with masks and stuff, you know, like there were people who were intentionally coughing on people. And I know that there are lots of people who were saying, if you won't back up from me, I will cough on you, even though they don't have anything you don't know that you need to get there six feet away, you know? And so I can imagine what people were like, you know, back then, Mm -hmm. like being afraid of touching or like, well, I'm going to touch you and like the scary thing. And yeah, yeah. It's just, the whole thing is just so nuts. (laughs) Yes. There were, you weren't allowed to ride public transportation that was forbidden to people who had the disease and the whole reason, so initially the site in Louisiana was the Louisiana leper home. That was what it was called and started at the very end of the 19th century. But then there was a man, his name is John Early, and he had leprosy and he was just kind of booted out from town to town. He would move with his family. They would learn that he had the disease and then they would kick him out of town or they would lock him up in a, like a pest, a pest house or an isolation ward. And no one really wanted to take care of these patients, right? Everyone was afraid. And so they would kind of try to shove them off this direction or that direction. Oh, no, you take care of them. This is a county issue. No, this is a city issue. This is a state issue. Um, And so he just was just pushed around to all these different places to the point at one point he was just living in a tent, like in this tiny little isolation yard because they didn't know what to do with him. And he actually after he escaped, he would escape time and time again. He went to um, Washington, D.C. and checked into a very fancy hotel where many of the legislators stayed. And then he made this great big news announcement. I have leprosy and I have been here and we need a a national home for people like me. Hmm. And that's like 1916 around then. And then, and they took it seriously. And um, the senators... And Congress people got together, and that's when they decided to create the um, National Leprosarium. And, and because Louisiana already had 
a colony, that's where they decided to, to, so they sort of transferred, took over ownership of that and made it, made it the national leper home and hospital. And that's where then there were a couple of other colonies. Massachusetts had one, New York, I think did. And then they sort of, they shut down and transferred everyone, all of the patients that they had down to Louisiana. So I have dog-eared a couple of things. Let's see if I can find them now. I think I just dog-eared this one because of the, and so they had to actually sanitize all of the uh, letters that were leaving. Yes, yes. They had um, a sterilizer that they would put them in and before before they went out. Um, and there were other, you know, they would talk about, so a lot of, um, the people they had it was it was they had little jobs that the patients who were you know well enough to work could do all throughout the the facility and a lot of them needed those jobs because interestingly two for every woman that was there at Carville there were two men so they don't they don't know why but leprosy definitely affects men more than women mm. and and a lot of these they were there the the breadwinner for their their families. And so if they, they were unable to, to send money home, their families would, would potentially starve. So, you know, they would be working, they would get their, their money at the end of the month and they would send it to their families. And some of the families would, they would then take the money and they would dip it in antiseptic and hang it on the, the clothesline until it dried before they were felt safe, safe using it. There was one memoir that I read she was a young girl at the time visiting, I think her, her father and her uncle who were there. And as soon as they got home, her mom made them, you know, completely strip down and, and wash, you know, completely before they were able to, you know, to go in the house. So if they didn't sterilize like the letters and the money and stuff going out, could people have actually gotten leprosy that way? So an, an interesting thing about the disease is that they're still not 100% sure how the disease is spread. They believe it is primarily spread like the coronavirus through respiratory secretions and not, not like touch, so, so contacting things. And it's kind of a fickle virus, or I'm sorry, bacteria. It doesn't, they, they actually, one of the words that the nurses would use is feeble. It's a very feeble bacteria, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, it doesn't live well on surfaces. So the idea that they could have gotten it from a letter is just incredibly, incredibly unlikely. Okay. Much more common. Well, first of all, you, you need to be, you, your own immune system needs to be compromised in some way that you would be, or the bacteria be able to take hold. So for most of us, we could be very close to someone with Hansen's disease, even for an extended period of time, and we would never get sick. And, and that's just because our immune system is just generally like 95% of all people have an immune system that's going to fight the bacteria off before it ever takes hold. But if you were one of those, those 5%, it, again, it would likely be because you were in close proximity to someone else who had the disease for an extended period of time. They have also seen that armadillos can transmit the bacteria to people. Although they, what's interesting is they don't know whether the armadillos got it because of us, like someone with the disease gave it to armadillos and then it spread in that population and then has since come back or whether it was, or, or, or whether they were um, a natural host for the right. bacteria. Um, so since, you know, people now we all worry about contact tracing, 
if someone today got mm-hmm. Hansen's disease, can they figure out how they got it? So unlike coronavirus, which, right, like, let's say I'm exposed to coronavirus, I'm going to develop, if, if I'm going to get sick, it's going to be within 14 days of, of that exposure, right? So it's pretty easy to go back and contact trace because you have that short incubation time. With Hansen's disease, that is not the case. Sometimes it takes years, even decades for someone with the disease to, for, for it to develop to a point that you're going to, to realize that, that you have a disease at all. And so then that becomes very difficult. Again, when you're trying to go back, well, where, you know, in the last 20 years, have you ever had contact right. with an armadillo for some, for example? And so that makes it a lot more difficult. But I think too, because of the very low communicability of the disease, there is less of a need to do that kind of contract tracing. Right. Because again, 95% of the people that that person came in contact with wouldn't, would not get the disease anyway. Right. Okay. Yeah. So let's go back to just general writing. Why historical fiction? How did you get in excited about that? I, I've always loved history. I had a, a fantastic history teacher, Mr. Mr. Vonville was his name back in 10th grade. And he just, he, he did all these fun things to really bring history alive. Like when we studied the depression and the, the stock market crash, he had a whole like stock market simulation. And we were all like, we had fake money and we were putting money into the stock market. And then one random day it, it crashed. And those of us who didn't have any money, we had to sit on the floor for mm-hmm you know, every, every lesson until we built back enough money to buy a house, for example, buy a desk, if you will. (laughs) And so I just, I loved the way that he, that he brought history to life. And I think that's what historical fiction is able to do in a kind of unique way. Certainly we can learn, learn a lot from history, from a textbook, but for me, it's the people that are experiencing the history that is most interesting. And that's why I, I like to write historical fiction. If I can view a particular event or era through the lens of a person who's, who's experiencing it, who is being affected by it, I'm just much more likely, I think, to, to remember that history and understand that history and view the history in, in a genuine complex way so that it's not this, you know, black or white or, you know, one side is good, one side is bad idea, but that, that, that these were people situated in a time and, and kind of, and struggling and hoping just the same way that, that we do that have aspirations and loves and desires uh, the same as we, we do today. So I've been trying to picture what it's going to be like in the future when someone does historical fiction about COVID. Mm-hmm. How long do you think it's going to take? Like the next year? Yeah, or- that's yeah, what a great question. <laughs> hmm. I, I, I will say that the agents that I have spoken to or, or heard at conferences definitely say like the, the market for your pandemic, like pandemic fiction mm-hmm. is there is no market at, at the moment, right? So right now, if you've written, <laughs> written a story about a pandemic, it's a very tough time to have it to get it sold. Uh, just because people don't, they don't have the appetite for that. But I do think, I suppose part of that depends, right? How quickly we actually have a meaningful end to the disease. You know, if, if we're able to, you know, in a worldwide way, 
end this fairly quickly. I think within five or 10 years, you might see books written in this era. In terms of looking at it in a historical fiction perspective, though, I wouldn't expect, you know, expect it to be like that for another 50 years or so. That's generally what they'll say is like, you know, we're just now entering like 50 years from the 70s. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. So that's right. sort of considered historical fiction. So there's a magic sort of half century. Yes. Or- and that's arbitrary. I mean, it is it is rather arbitrary, but but as it like sort of your as a soft rule, they will say <laughs> about 50 years ago is when you you'll look at something and, and be able to at least shelf that as like, oh, that's historical fiction. Right. Because you know, there's so much tragedy in historical fiction like people write about you know like your time period say world war ii all that Mm -hmm. stuff you know and we've had so much tragedy with people having to die alone that it's gonna be like oh we're gonna have all these tragic books (laughs) happening yeah Yeah. and i definitely think the the books like certainly memoirs of people's experiences Mm -hmm. and what i would call like contemporary fiction about the pandemic i think we'll see that within the next couple of years Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. The memoir stuff will come out a lot faster. Yeah. 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 So what word are you most comfortable with about things in your life? Like when you are telling somebody like this happened, this sort of thing happened, you say serendipity, coincidence, chance. So it depends, you know, again, like maybe just considering, you know, my, my nursing trajectory. Right. And, I would have said in the beginning, like it was chance. (laughs) That would have been a word I was more comfortable with. But I will say being a nurse this past year during the pandemic was, it's strange to to articulate because the pandemic, like you said, was so, it was devastating and horrific and heartbreaking, but it was such an honor, I would say, to be a nurse this past year. It was never in my life or my yeah, never in my life have I been so proud to be a nurse. And I, and it was a transformation maybe for me to understand like, yes, I'm a writer and that is sort of what I've always wanted to do and maybe how I identify myself, but I'm also a nurse and I feel more comfortable embracing that part of me as well. And so now when I think back to that initial decision, right, to, go to nursing school. And now I would call it serendipity because in my mind, there is a, a, a positive aspect, right? To the, to the idea of serendipity. And, and I definitely view that, that decision as, as a positive, a, a, a very, very positive thing, a very rewarding thing for my life in a way that I just never could have, never could have anticipated happening, but I'm so glad. I'm so glad that it did. So before the pandemic, it kind of sounds like if, let's say you were at a party and you met somebody for the first time, you may have introduced yourself as a novelist. Yes, yes, yeah. But now if, if you were meeting strangers, would you introduce yourself as a nurse? So it's, it's, um, (laughs) a nurse is, is something, I think it depends a lot on the setting, right? Because a nurse is something that people can like, grab on too much easier. So even, mm. even before the pandemic, if I, if it wasn't, if it didn't seem like there would be any sort of meaningful follow-up, mm. I would just say I'm a nurse because then wow. it's, that's easy, right? Like that's easy for people to kind of glom onto. Okay. Nurse person. <laughs> and, and, and then writer, a lot of people, when you, when you say writer, they think that you 
they think that you're a dabbler Mm -hmm. um, and that, that they, you know, they, that it's a hobby or that, yes, I wrote this book and then I put it on Amazon kind of a thing. Right. And so then if, if there is not, if I don't sense that there is the ability to maybe expand and say, (laughs) you know, and I've written these three books and yada, yada, then I would, I would still just say that I'm a nurse. Although I'm part of that is too, like, even as writers, I think we're a little bit self-conscious and we need to actually be better about owning that, that part of ourselves, right? That I, I am, I am an artist and this is what I do. And I am, <laughs> I am trying to make a living with, mm-hmm. with my art. But so now, now I like to say both, actually. Now I'm more inclined to say, I'm a writer and I'm a nurse. Oh, okay. Because they both feel, yeah, like, like, I guess, important parts of me. <laughs> I bet you get an interesting reaction for saying both that's different than if you just say one. People go, oh, you do both or something yeah. like that. And so the book comes out in August. Yes, so- July, July 27th. Oh, July 27th. Okay. And so it does people- say August on the corner. It's a weird publishing thing. It's, it's- it does. Yeah, it's an August release, <laughs> but the release day is July 27th. I don't know. I don't know why they do that. Yeah. And so people can pre-order it now, right? Yes. yes. Anywhere you buy your books, you could pre-order it. And now that the restrictions are getting lifted, are they talking about doing more traditional book tour type things or what? You know, I'm kind of, I'm feeling that out a little bit actually right now. And I've been watching as you know as things kind of shape up I'm hoping to do you know at least a a signing here in Las Vegas and then maybe again depending on I have I have a very very positive outlook you know for where we're moving with with the pandemic but also hesitant right and and a little bit wary to to just leap right in and, and assume that come August we'll still be in the same you know, improving situation that we are. So I'm feeling it out. And I'm, I'm definitely hopeful that I'll be able to do author, in-person author events. It's just as wonderful as it is to be able to, to meet virtually and, and connect with people from all over. It's also very lovely to, to be able to see people in person and have yeah. an in-person conversation. So I'm definitely hoping that that is possible in the fall. And I'll certainly be updating my website with any events that I, that I do schedule. And then I sent you that introduction to Dr. Sheldon Jacobs. um, He's been doing in-person events at different Barnes and Nobles and other places. And I'm not sure if they made exceptions because of the mental health crisis, or Mm -hmm. if that was that they just did that. But I know that that was happening, you know, not far from you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am seeing more and more, even at our small indie bookstore, they've started to do in-person events. So I am, I'm very hopeful that, that that's a continuing trend. <laughs> yeah. Right. So do you picture at any point retiring from nursing and just focusing on writing? What, um, how, do you, how do you see life evolving now? I will say that I, I that certainly for the past 10 years, has been my hope that I will, you know, be able to cultivate a readership that would support me being a writer full time. And now, now I'm, I'm a little bit more open to just to where life takes me. Right. I, I, again, I, I would, I would love for that opportunity. I think it is hard to, to squeeze in both being a writer and being a nurse at the same time, 
you know, thinking back to that, that first job that I hated compared to what I'm doing now, I'm just, it is, it's much more fulfilling. And I could see myself, you know, continuing on and doing that, you know, for, for decades more or, or coming back to it later. Again, that's one of the great things about nursing is that you can, you, you can't afford to have this kind of meandering path. So, so my answer is, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. But meandering path is a good way to look at it. I mean, cause a lot of people don't fit into a very straight and narrow path world. Mm-hmm. And so, and I think that this podcast appeals to them for that reason, because it's very much about life takes you this way, you know, and you just sort of go, okay, you know, and embrace it or figure it out instead of feeling like I have to walk the straight and narrow prescriptive path. And so maybe someone out there will hear this and say, you know, I have been looking for something that is challenging and yet flexible and is something I can do while I'm doing other things. You never know how your story might affect somebody else. I, cer- I certainly hope that that people are able to take, even if it's not nursing that they're drawn to, just the idea that, you know, well, for one, that life is too short, I think, to do something that you hate. And certainly I was came from a very, very lucky situation where I was able to, <laughs> to quit my job and write a novel. That's a very, very privileged place to be in. But but we do have one life. And I think it's important to to give ourselves the opportunity to to see that life can be in this this sort of journey that doesn't have to follow these sort of notions that we I think sometimes grow up with that you've got to really quickly go to college and figure out who you're going to be and get married and have all these, you know, have your 2.1 kids and buy a house and all of these, you know, prescribed sort of landmarks in your, your journey of life. Like it doesn't have to be that way. And the risk, the risk of, of trying something new, you know, it, again, it doesn't always work out the way that you think that it will. <laughs> it yeah. took me way longer to get where I am than, than what I thought, but it was been so worth it. Um, and, I, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. Well, I think that's a great ending point. But if there's anything that I didn't ask that you definitely want to touch upon, please, I, I would be remiss if there's something that you really wanted to come in and talk about. No, no, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate your, your, your thoughtful questions. And, and thank you so much for, for having me. It's been, it's been really nice chatting with you. Well, thank you so much for sending me your books. I could read it. I mean, I don't think it, it significantly mattered in, in some ways. And in other ways, it was just super nice to see like, yeah, you did this. <laughs> <laughs> that is always a neat feeling I have to say. Yeah. And that's, that's the feeling you don't get from eBooks in any way. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Well done to you. Thank you for being on Rebel Rebel. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And, you know, your book and all of your books and all about you will be on the website. And hopefully, hopefully people will pre-order it and read it and um, start following you. Thank you. Hey, you made it to the outro. Thanks for sticking around. I hope that you enjoyed that. I don't know if it's our age, my common listeners around my age, which is unfortunately now 52. And it just seems like 
almost every episode could be entitled Carpe Diem. She talks about making it happen. Don't stay in a job that you hate. Be flexible to your dream because you might not be able to uh, walk away from your job entirely. You might have to go and come back. It's, It's about being flexible and being open to your opportunities while you seize your day. So I hope that you read her. I think that pretty much anyone would enjoy her books based on the the one that I read, the Muriel West, and I hope that you do too. So not a lot of mental health stuff in this one, but as you know, my sponsor is betterhelp.com. And I just want to remind you that BetterHelp has counselors ready to talk to you. These are trained professionals and it's not a crisis line. And so many people wait to get into counseling until they're in a crisis. And I think the way to look at it is really about prevention, getting better, not waiting to hit rock bottom. So if you have issues that you want to work out, if you just want a trained ear to hear you, you know, whatever the case may be, BetterHelp will find a counselor that's right for you. And it's totally okay to say, this one didn't work out, I'm going to switch to another one. And if you use the code REVELREVEL or the link that's on my website, you will get 10% off your first month. So please don't be afraid to check out counseling. It isn't right for everyone, but it might be right for you. And finally, I just want to say that July is Disability Pride Awareness Month, and I was supposed to have a disability advocate and activist on the show, and Tatum had to change our timeline. So I actually have a gap where I didn't think I was going to, so therefore it's time for me to recruit more people. So if you or if anyone you know has some life stories that they want to tell and share with the world and point out how serendipity might not have been there at the time, but it was there when you look back, just like Amanda, that is totally, totally what we're looking for. Anything that is sort of unexplainable and a happy accident, happy coincidence. And you know what? Some of them aren't going to be always happy. Now, hopefully in the long run, it works out for the best. But at the time, it doesn't seem that way, right? So if it's you or if someone that you know would fit that bill, send them my way. Best way to get a hold of me is through the website. You just click on the link to my email. And if you really know me, you can text me. So adios, amigos. Thanks for listening.